You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. My name is Tyler Austin. I'm your host today. Uh, and I'm joined here for a group reading with some spectacular writers, and uh, I'll give them a quick introduction. Gerda Govine Duarte is the author of four poetry collections, Oh, Where Is My Candle Hat, available in English and Spanish, Alterations, Threadlight Through the Eye of a Storm, Future Awakes in Mouth of Now, 2016, and Poetry in Unexpected Places. She established the Pasadena Rose Poets in 2016, served as editor of the first Pasadena Rose Poets Poetry Collection, in 2019, and book two was published in July 2022. Her new poetry book will be available in spring 2023. Her poems are included in the award-winning collection, When the Virus Came Calling, COVID-19-202. She's been read and published on the domestic and international stage. We'll also be joined by Cassandra Lane, who is the winner of the Louise Merriweather First Book Prize in 2020, and author of We Are Bridges from Feminist Press, which NPR names of books we love in 2021. Lane received her MFA from Antioch University, Los Angeles. She formerly worked as a newspaper reporter, teacher, and in communications and community relations. Her stories have appeared in the New York Times Conception Series, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Lit Hub, The Millions, and elsewhere. She is editor-in-chief of LA Parent Magazine. Carla Rachel Samet is the co-poet laureate of, for Altadena, California from 2022 to 2024. She is the author of the poetry chapbook, What is Left from December 2021, and the memoir, One Day on the Gold Line, originally published in 2019 and to be reissued by Golden Foothills Press in 2022. Her writing on blended, unblended, queer, multiracial, and single parent families appears in a variety of literary journals and anthologies. Carla's work has been twice named as notable essays of the year in Best American Essays. A former Penn teaching artist, Carla teaches creative writing to high school, university students, and incarcerated youth. Colette Sarter's linked short story collection, Once Removed, won the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction, the NYC Big Book Award for Short Story Collections, and the Jury's Choice Award and Short Stories Award from the National Indie Excellence Awards. Her work has appeared in Kenyan Review Online, Carve, Slice, The Rumpus, Prairie Schooner, Colorado Review, and elsewhere. She is the Executive Director of the CineStory Foundation, the nonprofit mentoring organization for emerging TV writers and screenwriters, and she's going to kick things off here for us. Thank you, Tyler. Um, we wanted to talk today about writing complex women who you know struggle to navigate uh, you know the pressing issues of their day. And I know that kind of it, that's a broad topic, but I know it's a topic that's important to us all. Um, and we thought we'd start by each reading from some of our work. And Carla was going to start us off. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to be reading from my memoir, which is being um, reissued um, at the end of the year, One Day on the Gold Line. And um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the book first. Um, I was on a lifeboat in the middle of the Mediterranean when I realized that if I were to die, my biggest regret would be never having had a child. Um, and so my memoirs about that journey to have my son and the myths that I believed about how easy it might be to create safe family that was a safe sanctuary. 
I thought that my son having a lesbian mom, being African-American and Jewish, being part of a blended family or even a single parent family would make his life richer for him, but it was so much harder um, in reality. And so the memoir is about how I navigated life's challenges, um, including race, identity, police violence, and my teenage son's struggle with addiction. So you're gonna to get to hear a little bit about, in this case, um, complex character. Um, I'm writing about myself because it's a memoir. Um, and I'm gonna go ahead and read an excerpt from a chapter, hashtag cray cray mom. Over the years, I have erupted into distinctly unfunny states, crying violent tears, spewing Tourette-like curses, grabbing someone's leg, begging to be seen, pleading not to be abandoned. Don't leave me, don't hurt me. And time after time, I disintegrate further as I cling to this panic. I experience deshacer, total undoing of self, like molten lava pouring out of me. I have to stop this flow, but coming out from under the unnatural disaster of my life is not a linear process. Raphael had been in the inpatient treatment center for 30 days, and the insurance company said his time was up, even though neither Raphael nor I felt he was ready. I was in this volcanic state then, barely over pneumonia, and feeling the PTSD of running in and out of ERs, hearing that my son might die soon. We were sitting in an office with Raphael's assigned therapist who was preparing to discharge him. She had just informed me that Raphael wanted to go home with his father for the evening. I threw myself on the ground, begging him to come home with me. I watched Raphael's face fall in disbelief at his mother's wild, almost possessed convulsions, resembling a bride we once witnessed in a Baptist church getting the spirit. What do you want from me? I asked. I could kill myself. Will that make it better? Raphael ran out of the office. At the treatment center, kids lay about the living room area watching reality rehab shows. Raphael received daily therapy, ate healthy meals, went to an empowerment group, and had therapy sessions with his dad for the first time. Occasionally, I also met with Raphael and his therapist. These sessions didn't go well. Raphael was furious with me. I was sad and afraid that I'd caused his despair, angry that he held me responsible for the times he, he felt his dad had abandoned him, not being willing to set a regular schedule, refusing to be with him when Raphael didn't act right. That afternoon at the inpatient treatment center, the day he was to have gone home with me, Raphael ran from me, his molten mom. I was crazy with fear, fear of losing him, fear that he would always blame me for his addiction, and fear that perhaps it was true that it was my fault, no matter how many times I was told, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it. Not knowing where Raphael had fled to, I sobbed uncontrollably, ran out to the parking lot, and frantically called the people at the new intensive outpatient treatment program Raphael was about to start. They had given me specific instructions to take him home with me, not send him with his father. I believed if I didn't follow their instructions exactly, I might cause him to relapse. I didn't know what the formula was to battle his addiction, and I was desperate for direction. Though the plan Raphael made with the inpatient staff was to spend the night with his father, I still hoped that he would come home with me, but they told me they had called his father and I was no longer an option for that night. I thought I'd hit bottom then, running in and out of the building, sobbing while the staff, teens, and other parents stared at me. The horrified look on Raphael's face before he bolted said that I had finally gone too far. 
but I continued erupting. I ran around the treatment center and found my son huddled outside in the protective womb of the center's staff. I had to push my way in, asking permission to talk to him. Who were these people who felt they had to protect him from his own mom, I wondered. Raphael stood away from me, seeking refuge from his crazy mother. Suddenly, I wanted them to take me in. I wanted what Raphael had experienced for 30 days. I was a desperate child mom, even though the staff could have been my children, age-wise. Raphael, I addressed him. No response. He looked wary, scared, as one staff member held his arm around him and asked, You okay, son? Raphael, please come home with me. I didn't mean it, I said as calmly as I could, but he heard the shaking edge and knew it was a temporary calm. Children are trained to hear the possibility of eruptions. I know having lived through the minefields of my own family. Raphael, please, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. I've just been so worried, so tired, I pleaded. Underneath my panic eruption was grief, fear, loss. I didn't feel that I could bear it if I lost my son especially without ever recovering our close relationship, without fixing things. No, 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 he shook his head. I can't go with you. I can't. And then, just like that, the words tumbled out of my mouth, as if I was watching them in slow motion, in a voice bubble, unable to take them back. What do you want from me? I'll do anything you want. You want drugs? I'll give you your drugs of choice. The staff stared at me. This might have actually been a first in their adolescent treatment center. They led me out. Another counselor held Raphael as he stumbled away. One young staff member, far closer in age to Raphael than to me, put both arms around me. Mom, come here. Calm down. Let me give you a hug, he said, and held me the way I used to hold my son when he was younger and couldn't contain himself. Moms, it's okay. Calm down. Everything is okay. You need to take care of yourself. Later that evening, I spoke with the parent coordinator from the program. She was both an alcoholic and a parent of an addict. Both she and her daughter, who was only a year or so older than Raphael, had solid years of recovery behind them. She put her daughter on the phone. Oh, the threatening to kill yourself, she said. My mom did that with me. The daughter explained, we can't stand seeing you, our moms, so early in our recovery. You only remind us of all the fucked up things we did. Just looking at you makes us feel guilty. We want to use and we can't. A week later, as I continued to wonder, who is this mom who fell apart the way I did at my son's treatment center? I attended a parent meeting and heard a mom say, the doctor asked me what I might do if my daughter didn't stop using. And I said, I knew exactly what I'd do. I would drive my car right off a cliff. I'm gonna stop there, thank you. That was wonderful. Popcorn it. Who who goes next? Oops. Um, let's have Gerda go. Okay, thank you, Carla. We do a lot of tag team together. Um, I want to start off with some some poems that I wrote, and the reason I started writing poetry is because my youngest daughter was very ill, and um, she eventually passed away uh, over a nine month period. So we lived in Tijuana at the time, and I would go to our center and sit on the balcony and was able to look over the border because the fencing didn't come that high. And each morning I would write, that was the first time I wrote poetry because it was the only thing that kept me from going over that particular edge. Um, so I'll start off with 
with one of the loans, and this is um, when she was still um, in the hospital. I see you. I see you. Face swollen, ivy snakes along bed, flashes of consciousness. Body stirs at touch, long curly lashes peel upward slowly. Eyes look past now, staying or leaving, trusting in her decision. And being a mom of um, two daughters that passed away, that allowed me to keep going and it allowed me to begin to write and I'm at a place where I have to write. Um, it's always important for me to do that. Um, I'd like also, I have another piece I'd like to read to you. And this is about mothers whose children die before they do. Mothers who carry their own water. When there is no well, land is parched. Mouth dusty, skin cracked. Bloody fingers plant thornless roses. Mothers who carry their own water are viewed with discomfort. Curtains of words fall. I don't know what to say. Time heals all. Whispers trail behind like tales, a reminder of what could happen to them. Mothers who carry their own water live through, in, under, around the death of their children. How? They never ask why. Lean on winds of change, find warmth in cold places, push through survival to thrive, move beyond black and white, traverse shades of gray, refused to stay stuck in grave, dig deep for a well inside. And the other thing too, I, I write about whatever I write about. I write about mothers, daughters, children. And um, there's a piece that I wrote. It's, it was started because of an article that I saw um, in, um, in one of the um, newspapers. And this is really um, a mother's lament. Boy, child. I'd be crawling on all fours to get to you. I didn't realize his loudest cry for help was silence. Boy, child, quiet. Boy, child, did not bother anyone. Boy, child, slow. Boy, child, withdrawal, peaked at 14. Boy, child, scared to talk on telephone. Boy, child, wanted to be a neuroscientist. Boy, child, isolated. Boy, child, attended college. Boy, child, never hurt anyone. Boy, child, communicated by email. Boy, child, visits home, slowed down. Boy, child, disappeared. Boy, child, bought guns. 
boy, child, stockpiled body armor. Boy, child, mass murderer. Boy, child, my own son. Boy, child, what could I have done differently? And I also, um, I also write about um, things to ease the pain and to ease suffering. And this is, a, this is one of those poems. Bring flowers. Flowers are the most prolific inspiration for poetry, writer unknown. People cross borders every day, hidden and unhidden. Some simple as crossing streets, railroad tracks, or negotiating traffic detours, pushing us into unknown territory. These acts of crossing become more complicated depending on where you are from, what you look like, with or without accent, framed by cultural stereotypes, laced with ignorance and fear. Flowers cross borders every day from our neighbor south, Mexico. Beauty, waiting trucks for delivery to flower shops, decorate high-end restaurants, dining room tables, make birthdays special, bring freshness to weddings and comfort those who grieve. Bring flowers with you, if not in your hand, in your disposition, thoughts, words, and behavior. Are we so much different than flowers? We need to be taken care of with proper planting, sunshine, rain, for healthy living without being lulled into the matrix. The essence of real life call us to look, enjoy, breathe, turn our gaze inward, ask questions, find answers. As our world tumbles, we inch back, stay steady, even if the ground quakes. Flowers are the most prolific inspiration for poetry. And this, this one, I write a lot about my ancestors. Um, and this one is um, dedicated to my grandmother. Dressed in dreams, protects. Multicolored silk, orange, purple, yellow. This dress caressed body. Warm ocean waves lap against legs heart-shaped neckline, long sleeves, bodice embellished with tiny sparkling glass buttons. Feel safe, invincible. Grandmother, Princess Alexandrian Shinnery, Jos van Dyke, British Virgin Island matriarch, told me stories about how this dress only she, and now I can see, is a gift of wonder, enjoyment, satisfaction, Reboots energy, strength, focus. Can swim with sharks, dressed in dreams from granny. And I have one more. Um, and this is from my upcoming book um, that should be out in January. Sometimes I write about 
famous people, but I do that because I feel a certain connection to that. Simone Biles, air waits for her to enter, balance being baby, body defies gravity, double, triple twist, occupy virgin space, descend, feet on floor, happy to welcome her. Regular routine, no challenge. Create, curate new ways of moving, turning, making impossible possible. Body stretched towards ceiling. Jump into routine like no other. Judges cannot believe what they see. Mouths, jaws hang open. Brain stretched to limit. No one else can do what she does. Make it look easy. Talents, mind, Bending. That's it. Thank you. The next person I'm going to nominate is Cassandra. Thank you, Gerda. Thank you, Carla. Between the two of you, I just had a floodgate going. <laughs> so thank you for ending on such beauty, but even the grief and the loss. Um, it's so beautiful too, because you've written it and you've crafted such beautiful language. Thank you. I'm gonna read from We Are Bridges, which came out last year from the Fem Feminist Press. And um, this book is about me spending most of my, after having spent most of my adulthood running the opposite direction of motherhood, coming to terms with all of a sudden wanting a child, not all of a sudden, I'm sure there were little drops along the way because I loved kids, but I always thought as the oldest of five that I had done that <laughs> and that I would just help other people with their kids. <laughs> um, but I started dreaming about, it was a little girl, I ended up having a, a son. And as I was having those dreams and reflecting on why I had made the decision, how much of the decision was made out of resentment and fear and bitterness, and how I wanted to not live the rest of my life like that. I started reflecting on my family's story, my ancestor's story, particularly on my mother's side. And so this book juxtaposes my becoming a mother with my ancestors, my great-grandmother Mary, whom I remember very well, and the love of her life, Bert Bridges, who was lynched. I'm just gonna read two pages from my teenage years. Seems like, what they're really saying is that sex outside of marriage isn't a sin until a baby is coming. I overheard my mother saying one day, long as there's no child, long as there's no evidence. I did not want to be the recipient of the town's scorn. I had the abortion on a bright and cool Saturday in October of 1988. The annual Beauregard Parish Fair was in town and Dos Reese and I told our parents that we were going to the fair. He, he borrowed his stepfather's navy blue Lincoln, the hearse we called it. But instead of driving uptown, we cobbled our after-school job money together and drove across the Louisiana state line and into Beaumont, Texas, where my father lived. Dos Reese parked the Lincoln at the sheet clinic and we went in. A thin white woman in the waiting room leaned in close to me. She fixed her jumpy bright brown eyes onto mine for a few seconds. Don't worry, she said, grinning. It doesn't hurt a bit. This is my fifth one. 
I didn't care about the pain. My brain and body were numb with determination. The mask of gas the doctor gave, I'm sorry, the mask of gas the doctor gave me filled me with hollows of laughter. I laughed and laughed and laughed. My bellows rang through the halls, creeping up Dos Reese's spine. There were pricks along my own spine. Deep tickles circled in my throat and settled in my belly. If there were a reactionary cringing in my uterus, if life tried to hang on to life, I do not recall. I was disconnected from it. I had programmed my brain for this mission. I had made a mistake. We had made a mistake, I told myself, and we just had to fix it. And I had to fix it without anyone besides the two of us knowing. I would proudly wear my badge of freedom from motherhood. I would not have children. I could not have children. I would not bear the burden of my foremothers. I could not bear the burden of my foremothers. Their lives had been heavy, stunted, repetitive. At 17, I believed I was destined to be different, destined for freedom. You're my rock sand, mama often said to me, and I cannot count how many women have said this to me or something along its lines over the years. You are my rock, but I was not and am not a rock. I am in name and reality sand, a crumbly and unstable thing. In my mother's hospital room, I held my youngest little brother, Dane, and swayed like a softly pushed swing. He's not ugly at all, I said after some time. While I regarded his father with disdain, I was surprised at the immediate love I felt for my baby brother. His father had promised to marry mama, had bought her an engagement ring, and then abandoned her when she told him she was pregnant. I'll put you and the kids up in the house, but I'm not marrying you, he said. I hated his voice, how thick and slurring and arrogant it was. You had babies for those other niggas. You can have mine. I refuse to be one of your kept women, Mama told him. After she and the baby came home, she kept herself sequestered in her room, the same room she had slept in as a girl. It was the space we gathered in with her for intimate moments around a TV show or talk and felt barred from at other times when she was in the height of anger or lows of depression. By trying so hard not to be like my mother, had I altered my true nature? Was she wrong for wanting love and marriage? Was I? <laughs> Thank you, Colette. <laughs> oh, you each had me in tears. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I have a really hard time writing about myself, so I tend to write fiction. Um, but even when I do write nonfiction, it's about mostly mothers and daughters. Um, you know, I come from a long line of complicated, difficult women. And one of my, the characters I write about often um, is my paternal grandmother who loved us to distraction, but was an incredibly difficult woman um, and really thwarted by the time she lived in and by the poverty she grew up in. And 
wanted so much more than she was supposed to have, according to, you know, all of the rules that she lived with. Um, and so I, you know, I was going to read a different, the, I write very long, so I'm only going to read the opening of one of my short stories. And this is actually one of the first short, short stories I published. And I thought I'd read it today because the mother character is based on my grandmother. Um, and she's a recurring character throughout uh, my collection, which is called Once Removed. And this story is called Lamb. Any other day, I wouldn't have answered the door. I would have checked the peephole, seen who it was, and hidden. But lack of sleep had addled my brain. So when the bell rang, I got out of bed as blurry as a sleepwalker, with Luca clasped to my shoulder. My only concern that, please, God, don't let this child wake up. He'd nursed most of the night. My nipples were raw. There was bottled breast milk so Judith could help, but she'd worked late again preparing for a trial and then had left at dawn, leaving me alone with Luca. Again. The house felt empty, terrifying, Luca a kamikaze of demand that I couldn't satisfy. Clutching him, I stumbled down the hallway and opened the front door. On the porch stood my mother with two large suitcases. Not a word in two years, yet there she was with enough luggage for a month. You don't look like you had a baby, she said, her voice more gravelly than I remembered. Too dumbfounded to protest, I stepped aside as she picked up the suitcases and brushed past. Where's Pop? I asked. A safe question. Why are you here? Could too easily turn into, how dare you come here? Home, she said. Someone had to run the market. Her trim, sturdy figures, the fitted serge dress, impenetrable as a coat of mail, unchanged. But her neck was waddled and her careful French twist more salt than pepper. The suitcases thumped against her dress as she put them down. The bigger one left a damp splotch. She walked the baby grand in the living room. Fancy schmancy, she said and tapped a key. Judith plays. Ah, the slightest wind, but it was there. She closed the lid and sat on the couch to scrutinize me. Skinny after six weeks, she said, just like my family. Once we have the baby, poof, it's like we were never pregnant. Your father's side, they blow up like balloons and never deflate. She lifted her chin. This must be my grandchild. His name is Luca. I sat in an armchair across the room and shifted Luca to my other shoulder. She looked so small, her hands clasped like a child waiting for confession. The Rose de Corsia I knew would have taken the baby already. What are you doing here, Ma? She drew herself up. It's my only grandson's first Easter. <sighs> he still confuses night and day. Start early with tradition. They'll have it always. Besides, you can't ignore the holiest day of the year. Too tempting for Ilma Locchio. She laughed a little as she shook her fist with her pinky and index fingers extended toward the floor to ward off Ilma Locchio, the evil eye. A nonsense childhood habit, she claimed, even though my whole life she couldn't resist shaking those horns at the ground whenever she felt threatened. She stood up from the couch and walked to the bigger suitcase. A puddle had formed underneath. Ugh. She clucked and wiped it with a handkerchief pulled from her sleeve. 
I told the butcher it's a long flight from New Jersey to California. Use extra plastic wrap. We'll need a pail and some bags of ice. The meat will get tough if we defrost it too fast. Already she was listing demands. What could possibly need defrosting? I clutched Luca tighter. His eyelids fluttered. He frowned, as if deciding whether he knew me, and wailed. It seemed like he'd just fallen asleep. Reflexively, I checked the mantle where a clock lay face down, then the shadowed circle on the entry wall. That one was in the closet. I'd hidden all the clocks. Better not to count the minutes Luca refused to sleep. He screamed louder. Judith could get him to, get him to stop with a nuzzle. Savina, don't look so panicked. My mother walked over, prodded Luca's diaper. What? she announced and took him. I almost snatched him back, but he wasn't a wishbone to be tugged until he broke. My mother touched his nose and murmured. His wails faded. He knows his nonna, she said. She tucked him into the crook of her arm. I'll change him. You rest. The lamb I'll take care of later. I trailed her into the hallway. Lamb? I asked. In the big suitcase. She opened a door, peered inside, shut it again, all the while expertly jiggling the baby. Another door opened and closed. For Easter dinner, she said. She found the nursery and disappeared inside. So much fun hearing everybody's work today. Yes, yes. It really is. And it's really interesting to see the themes that crop up in all of our writing. Mm -hmm. um, at motherhood, fear of motherhood. Um, yeah, it, it's really fascinating to me. And I think it's because we are all writing, you know, complex women who are just dealing with issues that they, and, and some of them are everyday issues, right? Um, that, that expand into more global, difficult ones. Um, and I think we've all talked, well, maybe we could talk a little bit more about what kinds of women we write and what brought us there. Um, I think for me, it's a little murkier because I'm a fiction writer, um, but I've really had to work on a, uh, my, my personal thematic uh, through my teaching because uh, it's something I do with my students. Um, but what are the, I know Gerda's talked about this in particular, the recurring themes that we see are, are, or issues that we see our characters grappling with and how did we come to those? Even as a memoirist um, or an essayist, yeah. Yeah. So in my memoir, One Day on the Gold Line, I, um, I'm writing about the, I, I chose to read an excerpt that doesn't necessarily um, paint me, the narrator, the author in the most favorable light. Um, but I thought that it was important to, I, to show complex characters, um, to show that, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to read it with a disclaimer saying hey this is what led up to this but I felt like it was important kind of like with stand-up where you start with yourself 
Um, it's really important in memoir to be very unflinching when you look at yourself and you write yourself as a character. And it really requires going into character. And I, part of the motivation, a big part of the motivation for me writing this book was I was looking around for a book that showed characters that told a story that looked that showed a family that looked anything like my my family. And I, I had trouble finding that and all the challenges that we faced. Um, and so I kind of wrote the book that I would have liked to have um, to have read and um, also hoped that somebody could read it. Particularly because as women, as mothers, there's a lot of judgment towards self-judgment. Mm -hmm. And so it's really kind of a relief to read characters that are multidimensional. Um, they're not just all victim survivor. They're not just all, you know, that there, there are a combination of things that happen in each person's life. And the way we show up is, is complicated. Um, and so um, in this case, during a part of this book, the difficult character might be me as a memoirist. Um, anyway, I, I, I'd like to hear from everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to jump in. Um, one of the things as a mother whose daughters have passed away before she does, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of things going on, but I am the woman today because of my two daughters. Um, I did a workshop at Glendale Unified School District with a bunch of teenagers and and I shared you know, my, my experience in terms of my daughters. And someone, one of the kids says, well, if you had to live your life again, what would you do different? I said, I wouldn't. Because of my daughters, it helps me to be who I am. And the other part has to do with knowing that death was imminent. I was able to pull together whatever strength I had, whatever thoughts I had, and also to pay homage to my ancestors, my grandmothers, my aunts, because you may fall down. That's okay. Yeah. But you have to always get back up. So, and then the other, the other issues, you, you don't talk about a lot of things in, in a general conversation. And most people that know me, they may know about my daughters, but most people don't. But what I'm saying to you is there's a certain strength, a certain um, kind of knowing that for me gifted me in a way that gives me a perspective I wouldn't have had otherwise. And my youngest daughter passed at 17 and my second daughter in her 40s. So, um, and the other part that's really important for me, they're not here physically. They're always with me. Sometimes I talk to them. Sometimes I sing to them. So loss doesn't mean the end of the ride, the end of the bus. Loss can help be seeds to help you grow and develop and prosper. And the woe is me doesn't work because you, you stay stuck in that. So, so when, and this, this was the reason I wrote my first book was about um, a lot of different things, but basically about my daughters. But the other part that I just want to say real quickly 
is that at the time I knew she was going to pass away, I called uh, my, my doctor, Kaiser, and I said, you know, my daughter's very ill and she's going to pass away. I'd like to have some therapy. I'd like to meet with someone. So I got this therapist and she says, you know, I have a group of women and they're all women who have lost their children. Oh. That group helped to save my life. I was, I went there for about maybe, maybe close to a year. And then once or twice a year we'd get together because I didn't have to explain anything to them. If I came to the meeting, I didn't want to talk or if I cried or if I whatever, we were all sisters in so many different ways. So again, out of emptiness can come fullness and strength. And, and when I freak out about something that happened, let's say, you know, the, the, the water system breaks or the well is dry or whatever, I say, get a grip yeah. on a scale of one, to 10, this is a minus zero. So, so for me, my ability, my, my love of writing, you know, I was a writer for a newspaper, I've written grants and all of that, it's a gift. And the only reason I finished my, my, my doctorate was because my, my um, surviving daughter, the term my first daughter passed away, she says, you promised Lisa and I that you're gonna finish your doctorate. Hmm. And you finish your classes, but you, you're not writing. So guess what I did? I was National Director of Education for the NAACP. I quit my job, wrote my dissertation in that year, and took ballet lessons. Oh. I don't want to be a prima ballerina. I just need to have something that didn't use my brain in the way I use it in terms of writing. So, so my promise to my daughters, I kept it. And I kept, I keep moving all the time. And, and I don't have any particular thing I write about. I don't have a particular way. I write once a week because I'm in a writing group and maybe midnight before that group meets, I'm writing something. So for me, being able to write is, is my heart and my soul. And if I could not write, I don't know what would happen. So I just wanted to share that because there's grief and there's pain and there's all of that. I understand that. But how do you write your way through it? And I think that's, that's the lesson for me. So I wouldn't have changed anything in my life because I am who I am because of everything that's happened to me, good, bad, or indifferent. So I just wanted to share that. That's beautiful. And you're so right because we are, you know, whatever's happened to me in my life, good, bad, indifferent, it's brought me to this place. And it and every big event, like my father just died over the summer, and I realize that every big event in my life changes who I am to a certain degree, but it changes my perspective on my writing, and it changes it change like like I just rewrote my personal thematic. It's something that we have our writers do at Cinestory Foundation, where I'm the executive director. It's something I do in my class. It's an exercise where you basically are boiling down what you what you write about. Mm -hmm. And every time I teach the class, I rewrite it. And this time around, I thought, oh, I'm not gonna have to rewrite it again, but I did because my father had just died. And I thought, let me see how that influences. Mm -hmm. And it definitely changed the way I think about what I write about and who I write about. And it deepened it, you know, and because even though I write fiction, I'm drawing from that well, my well of experience, 
and it's not even a wealth, although I guess at my age, it's a wealth of experience, <laughs> but I was going to say, I never feel like it's a wealth of experience. You know, I always feel like someone knows more than I do, or who am I to write this? Um, so I stick close to small things that I know, and I expand on those. Um, but invariably, even though I'm looking either my life, or I look very often to the lives of my my the women who came before me in my family, my grandmother, my mother, um, my aunts, and I'll take things from their lives. And ultimately, I feel like by combining those things and making something different out of them, I'm grappling with a truth um, about these women who I know and love and who sometimes I strive to be and sometimes I strive not to be. You know? Yeah, thank you, thank you, yes, yes. I love that personal thematic. And I'm like, is that what my memoir was? <laughs> and I just kind of find out what, who I am. <laughs> and I think, I think I was drawn to write memoir and essays next because my writing career started off in journalism. I was a newspaper reporter. So I was constantly interviewing other people, telling other people's stories, researching. Um, you're supposed to be objective and not biased. Um, and then also, I think I was drawn to this, um, this genre because I grew up in a very, very strict religious family, where again, the question was for me as a kid, where's the personal? You know, it's all mm -hmm. black or white um, sinners, um, saints. And, and yet I saw these real human beings from my, my mother to my uncles, cousins, struggling with real human things. Um, but yet there was so much guilt and so much shame if you weren't all the way right. Um, and so I think when I started writing in my MFA program, yeah, I started off initially thinking I was writing, gonna write a fiction uh, novel based on my great grandfather. And as I would journal about it, I could not separate my own personal story and challenges. I believed in therapy, even though I didn't come from a family who embraced it. Um, therapy had helped me when I found my first therapist at 28. Um, and I, I was, you know, yes, it's scary to write about, you know, unsavory things that you've done, but I just knew that I wanted a whole person on the page. I didn't want to write in a way that pointed fingers at other people or this, you know, nebulous society without really looking um, at myself. Those are kind. Those are the kinds of books that I love. The kind of movies that I love. Um, reading fiction has really. It was just freeing and liberating to me to read, like Sula, Toni Morrison's Sula, for instance, um, and Janie Crawford in Their Eyes Were Watching God during the first time. These were women who were, you know, of my culture, and yet they weren't perfect, but they were so rich and liberating. And these are things that I didn't feel as a young girl growing up poor in a little town in Louisiana that, that women who looked like me could do. Um, and so those fictionalized characters freed me as a, as a young woman. I love that. I, I feel like we're, the personal thematic also, it also kind of reminds me of like cooking you know, like we're cooking up a stew and in that, in the stories that we tell, there's strength, mm -hmm. there's vulnerability and there's humor. Mm -hmm. 
And I think part of the story when we write female characters is um, to look for where is, where does the strength come from? And where does the vulnerability and how the humor keeps us, I feel like humor and writing has kept me alive. <laughs> and vulnerability, we've all talked about as mother, I remember a friend once said, when you even think about having a child at that moment is when you become vulnerable. It's so true. It really is. You just have to lay everything out there and put that self-absorption that's kept you from having children for quite a while. I'm calling myself out um, and say, this has to be about something else and having something be about someone, something else, someone else who you can't control because they are who they are from the minute they're born. And all you can do is help them realize help them realize that potential self um but that's frightening because you're releasing control and that's that to me is such vulnerability and i struggle with vulnerability obviously in my personal life but i struggle being vulnerable on the page mm. and my characters struggle being vulnerable on the page and that's that's been very difficult for me but those are the types of women i write about you know women who think vulnerability means weakness when really it means no showing your true self. Um, and that's been a real journey for me through my own writing and through my characters. And I think, again, that's why I choose to write fiction because to write memoir, although I have written personal essays and I have written lots and lots of personal essays, um, most that I keep to myself, those make me feel very vulnerable. And you know, with fiction, you've got that scrim in front of you, you know, that look over there, look over there, nothing's going on over here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think one of the things that helps me because, you know, I love fiction so much and poetry too is, and maybe this is some sort of mental break, I don't know, but I started being able to create myself as a self, as a character on the page. Um, so writing using my nickname, for instance, helped me, even though, you know, family back in Louisiana, that's the sand is what they call me, all of my friends and community, especially in California, it's like, I go by Cassandra. And so there was just a separation, a mental kind of separation that, I, that I'm able to do um, just through craft, through using the techniques of storytelling. And so, yes, it is about, about me. Definitely, I've had breakdown moments but really ultimately I felt like I was serving something bigger than, than myself, me, myself. Um, and I wanted to do this for the reader. So somehow finding a way to distance your character. Cause once you put something on paper, it, it is outside of you. And it is oh, yeah. the distillation. This is not your whole story. That's another thing that I continually tell myself. This is not all of me. This is just a little piece that I've chosen to craft and to share. I think that's something I really love about memoir and poetry, um, that it is, it's something, it's, it's just a portion of a person. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a portion of a, a worldview. Um, and there's so much more there, which is so exciting, you know, because when you read a rich, full memoir, you think, wow, what other stories are there? Mm -hmm. You know, when you read a gorgeous poem, you think I want another, mm -hmm. I want to hear more from this voice, from this perspective. And that's really special. Um, and I love that whole idea of when writing memoir, 
that's your character on the page mm -hmm. because it's only part of yourself. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to think about it and something I hadn't really thought about before. Huh, I'm going to try that. <laughs> um, I'd like to just jump in real quickly. One of the things I use the, the analogy kind of a, of a well. I believe we live in a world that's raining words all the time. And those words is captured by us, whether it's something we see, whether it's something we hear, something we read about, something that happens to us. And as writers, our well never runs dry. There's always something that shows up. So, so it's as though we've got this well and, and, and we're very aware of a billboard, a song title, it's out of a book. So the words are all around us and we each find our way to express what we need to express. And that's the beauty and that's the joy because it's, it's, it's personal. You know, um, um, the only one that's allowed in that well is yourself because it's your well. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I think as long as we have that well, we will do well. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the excitement for me because no one can take that from you. It's yours. Mm -hmm. It's your baby. Mm -hmm. and, and, and even if people go down that path, you know, I find a way to kind of disconnect because this is my work. This is my baby. And, and except for the editing phase when I, you go to a whole lot of different things, but it's your well of words. You know, and each world is different, it has your fingerprints on it, your DNA. And what you attempt to do is keep it flowing and keep it going. And, and, and for me, I don't write like every day, but I have pencils and pads in every room. I hear a word on TV, oh, that's great. Yeah. And so I have what I call poetry particles on my iPhone. I love that. Because uh, I have a workshop in the morning. I have to have three poems between now and tomorrow. I'll have it because I go to my poetry well and ta-da, there it is. But it's, it's we are blessed that we are writers. Mm -hmm. I agree. We really are. It's, yeah. I mean, sometimes I feel cursed, yeah. I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, I bet. When, when, when I'm having to leave things life fallow and just like figure out let them ferment but I, I also I have that iPhone notes and yeah. all these titles yeah. I even have a I have a file on my computer that I've had for decades now that what I have two files one's story infants mm -hmm. and one's essay infants <laughs> and, yeah. and and you know and it just I guess it fits with my whole idea of everything's about children and motherhood and right you know, sometimes I'm the child, sometimes I'm the mother, whatever story I pose. But, you know, I've got these infants who are always there waiting to be nurtured. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I have to say that I love um, when I, for a while after writing my uh, One Day in the Gold Line, I jumped, I started writing more fiction. And I just loved um, being in a different character, um, even a different gender, you know, because, um it, it was really nice to not be to be out of my story for a while um 
you know, because you go through, you write the book, you edit the book, you publish the book, you read from the book. And um, so for a little, now I'm re-energized now that it's getting reissued, but I, I went through a period where I really wanted to live in someone else's story. And I think it's <laughs> incredibly liberating to do that, um, both in fiction as well as poetry. I love that idea of going in and out, you know, the, yeah. the, the freedom yeah. and the, the flexibility to do that. And I love the well metaphor. I remember being a young reporter and hearing a more veteran reporter say, you're only as good as your last story. <laughs> and it's such a debilitating oh, mindset. <laughs> but I do, I see that also in the literary world. It's so interesting, you know, being a part of both of those worlds, journalism and you know, literary, because it's like, Oh, there's this fear. A, a friend who just published a book that's being that's wonderful has a, a, a fear of oh, can I do this again? And it's like who's who's telling us that? Who's who's making us believe that? It's not true. It's a falsity because we we have those words aren't going to run out. Those stories are, aren't going to run out. And I'm gonna I'm gonna post that somewhere big. I have a well. <laughs> yeah, I love that. You're right. We and that whole idea of you're only as good as your last book. Mm. It, the implication is that you got to write another one just like right. it. It's so debilitating. Nobody, yeah, and nobody wants to write another one just like it. We want to move on to the next story. We want to move on to the next group of characters or the next group of people in our own lives or the next thread of our story we haven't told yet or we haven't ex excavated yet right mm -hmm. and so no i am not only as good as my last book my next book is going to be different exactly it's yeah. just going to be different yeah. and it also seems to imply maybe that was like a stroke of luck or it's just a weird <laughs> thing. Yeah, right right yeah. it's and also define good yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah exactly. how do you define yeah. good there are brilliant books out there that don't sell yeah, yeah. and there are dare i say <laughs> books <laughs> written by mediocre white men that sell millions no, of copies right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. you know and and just and just mediocre books in general that sell a lot or good books that sell you just you never can mm -hmm. tell mm -hmm. you know so if your measurement is the marketplace as to how good a book is no, that can't be for me. My yes. measurement has to be, did I do what I wanted to accomplish? Yes. Did I, did I, did I give these characters the home they needed and the voice they needed? Mm -hmm. And if I've done that, I feel good. I want to just jump in for a second. One of the things that, that I find for me, I write mostly poetry, but sometimes I go to write a poem and the poem's too small. Mm -hmm. So I end up writing prose mm -hmm. or an essay so for me, there are no borders and boundaries. Mm -hmm. You know, I get into something, this doesn't really fit right, so I'll do something else. But we have this landscape of words and we can decide what we're gonna do with that. Right. And, and someone said, well, well, what do you write? I said, I write whatever, whenever. Um, and they're like, well, well, have you taken this? I said, no, I've got my degree. I was not an English major, but I've been writing most of my life. But what I like is what I'm dealing with signals to me, because not only do I want to get the words on the page, what's important to me is how they even lay on the page. Mm. You know, in terms of, yeah, you can have your two stanzas, you can have whatever. So I have no borders and boundaries. I do all kinds of crazy stuff with my letters and the way it forms and all of that. But it's so yeah. much fun, it's enjoyable. 
And, and someone once said to me, well, you wrote this poem and it's like this and you wrote another poem like that. I said, well, thanks for informing me. I appreciate it. And I went on. <laughs> so so it's, if we begin to feel like we're in a straitjacket, mm-hmm. it's, it's not good for us. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not saying we may not feel like that sometimes, but it can visit and then leave. Right. <laughs> Isn't that interesting though? <laughs> you could apply the same words that you're saying about structure and writing to this theme of how are we supposed to be, you yeah. know, as women, yeah. or how, are, how are our women characters supposed to be and act? It's right. the same, the same issue of mm-hmm. don't box me in. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that whole, and, and something Carla brought up at the very beginning, which um, I'm thinking is a, the last topic we can explore a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's maybe a twofold topic. It's that whole idea, but it connects to this. It's that whole idea of writing unlikable women. Right. Who def- who gets to define what's unlikable? Mm-hmm. Who defines that? Right. And also, and, and do we care? Mm-hmm. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I really think that's why why it's so important to go be, have characters that are multidimensional right. and flawed, mm-hmm. but also characters that that you can feel a connection to. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that's I'll speak. That's probably what we all want from our readers is to feel that connection, even maybe a little flicker of recognition, even mm-hmm. when they want to dislike the character or what, what the character has chosen to do in the story. Yeah, I think yeah, in that way, it's just an act of forgiveness too. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I can mm-hmm. write about a neglectful father, but then think about what did this, who was this person as a child? Even if I might not have ever seen a picture of him as a child. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's very, it causes you to to have compassion and empathy, um, and yeah. that has helped me with that with forgiveness. Oh, I love that. Um, I love that. I, yeah, the part the empathy. Yeah. yeah, and it shines through your writing if you're writing, whether it's whatever genre. But if if you have no empathy, I think there's a dis there's a disconnect with the characters. That, right. Right. Well, that's honestly what I, what I, I mean, if someone comes to me and says, I really didn't like your character. I really, really didn't like, you know, her and when she did this, that's okay. I'm not asking for you to like my characters. What I want you to do is empathize with them. Now, if you tell me you find them completely irrede- irredeemable and there was absolutely nothing that made you feel like you were connected to that character, well, then I haven't done my job because I haven't empathized enough with that character. And I haven't explored that character's voice enough to know what humanizes them. Because I want them to be human. I want I want them to be round. I want them to be complicated and messy. And 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 some readers don't want the mess. You know, we, I had a woman in um in a reading the other day who was aghast when I said, you know, I try to come up with these characters I really love, and then I make bad things happen to them. She's like, oh. That can't be empathizing with your characters. I empathize with my characters. I nurture them. I protect them. <laughs> okay. You know, I, exactly. Okay. That's great. <laughs> but at a certain point, I have to let them go out into the world and face challenges just like we do. Yes. And that's the only way our readers are going to empathize with them either. I mean, too. 
because if we have a pure bad person who just does bad things and giggles as she does them, that's not real. Right, just like an all good person is. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Exactly. you know, yeah. <laughs> so true. When when I was, I wrote a, one of the essays in, in my memoir is called Mother's Day and I'm writing about, the narrator's writing about just me, the Kim, um, feeling so much pain on Mother's Day because of multiple miscarriages and wanting to be a mother so much um, and feeling separated from the person who was the, the, the man, the husband who she was trying, or who I was trying to have a child with. And what was really important in me in there was to show the character, to show my own lack of empathy at that moment to towards the father who had lost his mother mm-hmm. at, um, at a young age and what Mother's Day might mm-hmm. significant and, and what the also the pregnancy loss might mean for him. And um, I think that's what's one thing that's really interesting in um, memoir is to look at as a narrator, like what are you showing about your characters and how you're telling, like what are you showing that's missing in that moment? Um, and I think also, even though memoir is just a slice of life, and this is true in fiction too, where you're, you're showing change over time is really interesting to show with characters. Um, but boy, we have we do have to get to know our characters well, whether fiction or nonfiction or poetry, right? Um, and that that I have to say, the times that I've written uh, personal essays, getting to know the characters, I write. I've written a lot about my mom and me after she died, and being honest, being honest about my role in her loneliness and in and the way she was treated in our family and you know it was hard it was really hard but you know owning that stuff and putting myself out there in the worst possible light was okay with me because it felt real you know i think also quickly that you know you talk about diversity you know people look at me and they assume i was born in the south you know my family you know, all that stuff. You know, I'm part Puerto Rican, you know, part British, part French, whatever. And we have some stories that live in our culture that we have access to. And, and I think one of the beauty about being a writer is that you've got options and choices here because I could tell a story about something in my family, my growing up, that might be different than yours, but then there still may be some similarities or not. Yeah. So, 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 you know, being a writer for me isn't going to be right next to a straitjacket. That's not going to happen. No. And if the straitjacket comes near, I would say the words and make it go away. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, and, and so, so there's a, there's a, there's another well of diversity in terms of, you see somebody have no idea who they really are, what their stories are. Mm-hmm. And we as writers can, can help people in terms of getting information they maybe might not get from any place else. And, and to really be able to make a difference, you know, and people read your books and whatever, you don't know whether you make a difference or not, but sometimes people come and tell you. Sometimes they say, you know, this particular story or this particular poem, so 
and we're lucky and gifted. And the way you nourish a gift is by displaying and sharing that gift. Mm -hmm. You do this, you kill it. So the world is our oyster, good, bad, or indifferent. I love what you're saying, Help, by unwrapping, by going into your work, Gerda, by the reader going into your work, um, you're breaking stereotypes, you know, you're breaking assumptions that people make in terms of identity and, um, yeah, you're, you're, you're really, I, I think that is a way that readers are changed and transformed by your work because they're, they're going and having certain expectations and, and they're surprised um, with what they learn. Yes, absolutely. It's such a stereotype busting activity to in so many ways. And being a black woman from the South, I and my husband and I talk about this a lot. He's a black man who grew up in South Central Los Angeles. So yes, stereotypes are born out of these things, but how do we press into mm -hmm. these stereotypes and then blow those up, you know, mm -hmm. with dynamite. So um, in writing about my, you know, I could choose not to write about my family because it fits under, you know, the things that they went through fits under the umbrella of some unfortunate stereotype, but yet I would be missing out on all the riches yeah. um, and treasures of those people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah, all of it. Don't make assumptions about who this author is because they might yeah. not even be from the U.S. or whatever. <laughs> yeah. you know? yeah. And don't make assumptions about the little girl or little boy who did grow up on a dirt road, on the side of a dirt road, because that person has riches inside them that you've overlooked. Mm -hmm. I have a collection of poetry coming out next year called Secondary Inspections, and the title poem is about the assumptions that people make about just when they look at you about ethnicity mm -hmm. and race. And oh, yeah. oh, can't wait are. to read that. Can't wait to read that. Well, this has been, I have to tell you, I think I might have to listen to this episode every day. <laughs> Gerda, in particular, wow. I love, I just want to, I would love to end on the thought that. If we hold our gift close, if we hold our writing close, it stagnates. But if we share it, it grows. Exactly. And that's such an inspiration to me. I can't tell you how much that means to me because I'm in the holding it close phase. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all. Just this conversation has been okay. a wonderful inspiration for me and has gotten me really excited again to go back to my work. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. In the middle of work, thank it you. my lunch hour, and I'm so inspired. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And thank you, Cassandra and Colette and Gerda, for sharing your beautiful work with well, the thanks world. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to all of you. And, and Skylight, Tyler, and thanks for coming. Skylight, having. thank you. Oh, thank you, Tyler. We need oh, that. Right. We need Skylight. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> What a what a joy to be a fly on the wall. Uh, that was that was a really wonderful conversation. Just touching and, and beautiful. I'm lucky. Uh, lucky I got to listen in today. It was wonderful. So, okay. and Colette, I was there when that woman said that your character shouldn't have any That's confidence. Right. <laughs> I couldn't I believe you it. were there. Wonderful. <laughs> I, I, I just want. I'll say you handled it so well. I was like, she's clearly a teacher in some way because. It wasn't an, a designated Q&A portion. She just started talking and you engaged her and really like, you know, I was like, wow, you're handling this so beautifully. 
I, I need to give you it more was, props. I, I will say I've never had a, I've never had a heckler at a reading, and that was pretty fascinating. <laughs> We usually don't. We usually don't. Uh, oh, Skylight yeah. is the best place to read. It yeah. really is. And we're so excited that we were we were able to do this podcast with you, Tyler. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us. And, uh, and you know, uh, hopefully enjoyed listening. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. Yes, thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.